Hi, and welcome to another episode of SPAT, a bookish podcast. I'm Elle. And I'm Reggie. And today we are discussing Law by Alexandra Bracken and with Sandra Rutan. Hi. So, Sandra, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And to start with, why did you choose this book? Well, my mind went racing when it, I was trying to decide what to pick to talk about today. And there are so many great books uh, by women and by marginalized authors uh, to choose from in, in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And, um, you know, so I was really spoiled for choice because if I thought back over the last couple of years about books that I've enjoyed, there are plenty that would qualify. I chose this one because of some of the themes that come up in it, uh, because I had it had really surprised me when I read it. I think it was my, my first time reading Alexander Bracken, and um, it was kind of the, uh, one of those books that just sort of blew me away and left a lasting impression. So I thought it would be a good one to talk about. Wow. Okay. Um, so for those who don't know, Law is a book that focuses on, I do have the name of the characters here. Right. So Law is about the Aegon, which is a Hunger Games style punishment for the gods and in which nine Greek gods are forced to walk the earth as mortals hunted by descendants of ancient bloodlines. Um and the main character in this is turned her back on the whole thing and seeking out a different life for herself. Mm-hmm. So Greek retellings at the moment are incredibly popular. Mythology retellings in general are, but Greek seems to be a massive, a massive thing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything about that aspect that appeals to you? Like, do you generally like retellings or is this one that quite surprised you? I don't read a lot of retellings. Mm-hmm. This one, this was one of those ones that, well, first of all, the cover is just striking. It, it is one of those books that, to me, you see this cover and it automatically piques your interest. And and then I read the description and I thought that it sounded really interesting. I mean, I, I suppose that Alexander Bracken is probably uh, successful enough that she just said... Oh, um, you know, I want to write another book. And they said, cool, 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 please do. Because, you know, she's she sells very well and, and, and is, is very successful. But, I mean, I could imagine this book pitched as The Hunger Games meets Greek mythology in an urban fantasy set in New York City. <laughs> like, it was really clear in my mind what I was getting into in that respect. And I was curious to see how that was all going to play out. Uh, within the book and I was also really I think I was really interested mainly in the in the idea that here you had this descendant of one of the bloodlines who really wanted to escape her past and carve out a new life for herself and as is so often the case um, it's really hard to run away from who you are and and you have to ultimately confront that sometimes in order to really move forward in your life and and this is a book where that's really central to the main character so that part of it really appealed to me more so than necessarily the greek mythology i think i think the way that the mythology is incorporated in this is is stellar i don't know i mean i studied greek mythology in high school so it's been a long time um so i can't necessarily speak to accuracy or anything but it all felt it, it felt fluid to me, if that makes sense, in a way that um, th- that it it was reminiscent of things that I did remember when it was relevant to bring up things from the past. So, and, and because it's really set in the modern day, it's quite separated out from I think the classic stories that we have heard from Greek mythology. Um, you're dealing with Athena in the here and now, pissed off and injured, and you know, like and and uh, mad at her sister and wanting to avenge her her brother who was killed by a mortal and you know you've 
you've got so you have different dynamics going on with the, the gods in in this as opposed to what you necessarily heard about um, from the ancient myths. Yeah, and one of the great things about the Greek myths is that it's been so long that they've already evolved a lot of the mythos. So it now is a good time to like re-evolve them. But one thing that stays consistent from the little bit I've skimmed in preparation for this call, because I also have the book, just it's on my shelf, I haven't gotten to it. Um, it does seem to stay with the the main pantheon and their rage issues. <laughs> they have some anger issues that are consistent throughout mythology. And I do like when stories keep those kinds of aspects of the gods because they're not all benevolent. They are just as flawed as humans, which I think is a part of the appeal of Greek mythology. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I was actually thinking that uh, if you were to put a warning on this book, I know some people might be surprised to hear someone say this about a YA because people have faulty assumptions about YA, but this is one of the most violent books that I have ever read. I mean, it's unapologetically violent. And what I mean by that is that it it's just so ingrained in what's going on. You almost can't even take the moment. Uh, whereas if you think about the Hunger Games, you think about moments like the death of Rue and that, that are turned into great big moments within the movie or the book and, mm-hmm. and, and really impact the characters that way. I mean, they're, they're dropping like flies in this book. Not that you necessarily know who, who all of the people are because there's such every bloodline has, well, <laughs> every bloodline that's still in existence or because Laura's bloodline is, she's the, essentially the last of her bloodline all the other bloodlines that are still in existence there there are hundreds of them participating in this and so the body count if you were to start tallying i don't even think you could keep score of the body count i mean at one point they're just putting them on a bus so they're you know to go and to take them to to kill them um so who knows how many are on that bus and and you know there's there's a scene where it's like you know, kill five every five minutes until he t- gives up the information we want. It's just, you know, and, and <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's, that's, you know, so it's, it's just there. It's infused in, in, in this, um, and, and, you know, and it's, it's, a it's almost comical. Like one of the biggest challenges that Laura and Athena have is like, you know, is not, <laughs> is, how how do we you know get in a cab in New York City and carry our weapons without people calling the police? This is like their biggest you know this is the biggest dilemma. The dilemma is not that well we need to go kill X Y Z. The dilemma is how are we going to hide these weapons? <laughs> that sounds like a New York City problem if I've ever heard one. It 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 genuinely is a New York City problem. So, it, it, you know, but it, it's interesting in that respect because there, there is, and, and I, what I liked about that was that we have a tendency to romanticize the past mm-hmm. and to sort of uh, soften all of the edges of history and, and gloss over mass killings and genocide. I mean, <laughs> our past is, is very brutal. This book goes right to the heart of that these people haven't changed they are violent they are sexist they are rooted in traditions that need to die and and really it all centers around lore that she can see this and see why it's necessary and at the same time finds herself pulled back into a situation where she you know has to participate in the agon again and does not want to but here she is so i i thought it you know I, I thought that was really interesting that um that you know and i mean like when you read the book like the first two chapters by the end of the second chapter laura's been in two fights she's got bruises blooming all over her face i mean this goes right into the heart of some of our ideas about gender too because we have a female character who is not afraid to fight who mm-hmm. who fights for sport 
Um, yeah. and, 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 and that runs counter to a lot of people's ideas about femininity and, and, uh, you know, it's, it, so it's an interesting, uh, point from which to explore some of those themes, I think. Agreed. Yeah. And what you just said about um, a woman who's not afraid to fight, that just reminded me, and I don't even know where my brain was going while making these connections, but there was a, I believe it was a Viking warrior skeleton they had found years ago, and they kept talking about how he was one of the most decorated of the tribe or something like that. And then in recent years, they actually found out it was a female skeleton. So one of the most decorated warriors that we have found from that Viking era is actually a woman. And, or at least biologically born a woman. We don't know how they identified as a gender. But their skeleton shows female attributes. And that, I think, is something... To, there's something to be said there with... Not even acknowledging the fact that there could be woman warriors in our past. Yeah. And that is something very important because as long as there have been people, humans as we currently stand today, I'm certain there have always been female fighters and female warriors and a lot of, I say this with the most respect, tough broads out in yeah. our past. And it's just constantly covered up. So it's really refreshing in a sense to have a modern urban fantasy where that doesn't where it doesn't shy away from that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and actually, there's a lot of subtext in this. Um, it, that one of the things that happens in this book is that uh, if, if somebody in one of the bloodlines kills one of the, one of the gods during the Aegon, only for these seven days, once every seven years, the, the gods are, are mortal. And if uh, somebody from the bloodline kills them, they become the new god, and hmm. and so they take on the god's powers, and so, uh, so everybody, of course, is trying to kill a god, except not everybody is trying to kill a god because they have this rule that women can't, and I, <laughs> I find it, you know, there's nothing quite like the conceit of these men imposing this rule on their entire bloodline, given that they're hunting Aphrodite and Artemis and Athena, they're, they're prepared to kill female gods and take their power, but they won't let women take a, a female god's power. The, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's, like, let's stop and think about this. And there was this whole notion that we don't even know if women, we didn't even know if women could until, I think it was Tidebringer, um, there's so many names in this book, um, killed and of course, that was basically the end of um, what part of what kicked off the end of Laura's bloodline because there, because her bloodline rejected Tidebringer for being a woman who killed a god because that was just not done. Um, and, and so, to me, there's this uh, you know there's there's this subtext here of saying like you know all the ways that women have been oppressed and and even the most powerful women in in our histories for these families, the 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 female gods, um, don't have you know even they will be subjected to being hunted by men and and having to pass on once they're killed, pass on their their powers to a man instead of to a woman. It's uh, you know, there's there's a lot there. That is definitely a lot to unpack from multiple perspectives on that front, the logic leaps that they would have to make in order to sustain that rule, implement and sustain that arbitrary rule, just because they, the men of those bloodlines wish to maintain the powers, even though historically it's been a female god taking over. So... It sounds as well like it's a good way of showing how that kind of arbitrary rule about gender or, and any type of bigotry ultimately harms everyone. Like the fact that her bloodline is dying out because they rejected this woman. And it's... Yeah, precisely. Yeah, and you see it all the time. You see it with 
in a, not just gender but outside of that as well like like i said any form of bigotry where that kind of hatred just festers and destroys me inside yeah i agree i and it, it really is so sad that it something like that should have been a moment where all of the women you know when yes i'm not cut out and instead they didn't you know they went with convention and uh, really how tragic is that there's convention then there's also possibly you can extrapolate and internalize misogyny of sorts within that as well oh yeah and 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 i mean the the girls are conditioned from a very young age there's there's actually um there's there's this uh, one point where Laura has snuck in to an, she's trying to see an old friend from one of the other houses. She has a reason for being there. Not that she really wanted to go, but, um, but she's, she's snuck in and she's watching this whole procession and they're, they've dressed up these girls and painted them in gold and they're offering them as gifts to the new God that if the new God, if any of them should please him, he can take them once they've, um, once they've bled. And, and it's just like, and she, and her, her immediate thought is, you know, prisoners, she thought, venom pumping through her veins. That's all these girls were. That was all they ever would be allowed to be. I I mean, that's, you know, it's something that enrages her to look upon that world and these customs and see that they have perpetuated these traditions. And of course, the new God is her, is her friend. And he's like, no, and actually we're putting it in a new rule that you're not allowed to do that. And nobody can claim uh, a, a woman as their mate unless the woman consents. And of course, the whole, his whole bloodline is just like, what? You know, they're not pleased, but, you know, we're seeing, and, and again, this is where the time uh, for this book is interesting. I remember way back in high school, uh, learning about one of the things in North America, particularly because there's so much emigration to North America, you know, from all around the world. And you, you get people moving here who preserve their family customs and and their ethnic traditions and because they're detached from their origin country and and culture they don't evolve with it in the same way Mm -hmm. that the people that they left back in their home country do and so you almost get this i don't know secondary um culture that's somewhat stunted um you know, maybe that's not the best word to use, but but it's an interesting dilemma that uh, for some people who and I'm sure that the Internet has changed this uh, to some degree uh, over when I was in high school. But it was an interesting thing for me to think about in the sense that you have families that come over and they rigidly adhere to their traditions because they don't realize back home that their society has changed. and and evolved as is natural. And so in, in this context, in this book, these bloodlines are as stunted as they come in terms of progress. They have not evolved at all in, in the way that, you know, other people have in terms of equality and, uh, and in terms of their philosophies about you know, different things. I mean, yeah. they're as bloodthirsty and violent as sexist and misogynistic as ever. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it also speaks to the fact that this is happening in New York City, which is like a whole melting pot of different cultures and different. You have the old with the new all the time in New York City. And it's just a small microcosm. That's true everywhere in North America. But it is true what you said about cultures not evolving when they come over here. First, you had that long travel with a lot of people in the 16th, 17th, 1800s. So that's all you had. But even as travel picked up speed, you still stagnate. I mean, we still see a lot of that today. 
And then you have those communities that just refuse to change, those that assimilate but try to stay on with other things. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. I was going into like I was going to go into a whole thing about the Pennsylvania Dutch, since we're both from Pennsylvania here, because that's its own thing, and it's very hard to explain how something can stagnate so much and be so isolated. And it's very old school a lot of what they do to the point that we need translators in our hospitals for their language. So it should not be surprising then that these gods that came over have stagnated in their own way on not seeing the world for what it is necessarily. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's interesting when you say about the cultures as well, because you kind of do see that in, like you said, the Pennsylvania Dutch, but if you're in the UK, you've probably seen pockets of, like, Scottish or Irish or Welsh sometimes, which seems disconnected from what those identities mean back in the UK. Does that make sense? It does. So like, yeah, like, like America celebrates St. Patrick's Day in a much bigger way than Ireland does. Yes. And yes, in many ways, true. that's the only thing they have to connect themselves to their history yeah. because they had to assimilate or die in many cases. Um, we won't go into the whole immigration no, of course aspect <laughs> because that is very complicated in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm it, from Italian, like our family has just barely been in the States a hundred years. So, like, we're still relatively new in comparison to a lot of my friends. But, like, my dad wasn't allowed to speak Italian growing up because his dad was scared that he was going to get curb stomped and, like, thrown rocks at. So we never, like, you have to disconnect in certain ways in order to survive. And I think that's an important thing as well that we forget sometimes as cultures move around. Mm -hmm. You try to hold on to things, but then you have to let certain things go. Otherwise, you just simply cannot survive and thrive in the new environment yeah and i mean i i could dedicate an hour to ranting about how what the english did to the welsh language with that but uh we won't go there (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say i could really start talking about what the english did to the irish (laughs) you know uh, because i lived in the republic of ireland for a little while and um you know it's and but it's but the same thing has happened over in North America to indigenous populations. Yes. Uh, indigenous languages are dying out rapidly uh, because, um, you know, certainly because my ancestors are in Canada and that's where I was born. Um, I can speak better to it there. You know, uh, indigenous languages were banned. Uh, children were pulled away from their families and put into those horrible residential schools. And, mm-hmm. um, it's stripped away from their culture and their heritage and their language and people who love them. And, um, you know, it's just absolutely horrific. I I think that if there is an interesting contrast back to the book, it's that actually they all speak the old language fluently, which is interesting. I suppose that they've managed to preserve it so clearly, but then again, that probably speaks to their intent to rigidly hold firm to their customs um you know it's just something i something i hadn't thought about when i was reading the book but it's something that has occurred to me with this discussion that they they do switch back and forth to the old tongue it's it's referenced several times throughout the book so yeah yeah that i i can't really speak about this too much because i am not jewish but it kind of sounds like how Hebrew is preserved within Orthodox communities, Orthodox Jewish communities, where they can speak English, but their primary is Hebrew. Um, I went to college with a lot of Orthodox Jewish women, so I would hear that switch all the time walking down the hallway, and you just wouldn't necessarily think too much about it. But that is kind of like what you just said, a kind of rigid adherence to a tradition, a language, something that makes them them, 
there's nothing bad about that, obviously. It's just interesting to think about it in that kind of context within lore and these communities that I'm not a part of. I'm not going to be any kind of official... I don't even know what the word is. I am not an expert by any means. But it's just yeah, interesting same. from an outsider perspective that it's it kind of rings a bell to me in that regard. Yeah. And, yeah, and it, you do get those communities. Obviously. Like you said, even with the Pennsylvania Dutch, you have those communities that manage to preserve those smaller languages. And like you said, that I mean, a lot of that, like you said, with law, it comes back to being so rigid with their structure, their hierarchy, their, sorry, that's the cat running into the room. Um, <laughs> and their general kind of strict view on on things. Um, yeah. And and, uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, it's fine. Go, go on. No, you can really finish. I didn't want yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I was going to say, like, and it's interesting when I, when I think about how that ties into, in the, the book, they're, they have their own discrimination, not just towards women, um, but they also refer to the unblooded, and those are people who are not born in the bloodline, and they preserve their culture and their customs away from those people rigidly and of course because lore has been trying to get out of this she actually has a roommate who is quote-unquote unblooded and um and this is her good friend and 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 of course as things progress and i mean he's drawn into this in a way that you know she's not happy about and she wants to keep him safe too but you know but when uh, the more people who start showing up on her doorstep um you know there's this constant you know reference to him as a, an unblooded and you know and by this point Athena's like this mortal pleases me he stays <laughs> but but which is you know and he is used he's and and in throughout the book he is used as a character who both offers some levity in the moment um but he's he's also um you know he also contrasts their their biases and kind of the the stupidity of their customs and i think uh, this is a short quote from the book which just emphasizes the contrast that he brings to their customs this is lore speaking you can't fight hunters miles they're trained to kill gods and anyone else that stands in their way i would never even find your body he gave her a strange look I'm not going to fight them, Miles said. I'm going to hide in the basement and call 911 like a normal person. And that just <laughs> underscores the difference in their thinking, right? I mean, her thinking is like, you know, you know, pull out a whatever, a, a knife or a mop handle or whatever and start fighting for your life. And he's like, I'm not fighting. I, you know, and, and it really does highlight just how kind of crazy... It, it, you know, uh, their customs are that that they would continue with this bloodlust for centuries, and think that it's yeah. perfectly normal and 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 not just normal, but I mean, it's something that the ones who are fully in it relish. You know, um, yeah, like lore. You know, lore is not lore's her immediate family when they were they were they're, they're, you're not supposed to slaughter anybody outside of the Aegon and what happened was that after one of the prior Aegons the day after when her family should have been safe um, one of the other houses broke in and killed her parents and her younger sisters and they gouged down her younger sisters and of course left coins in the the eye sockets and mm -hmm. and i mean this is just it's an unflinching look at like this is the way that these people lived and what they did and and people just you know within their community just shrug this off like this is okay and for her this is not just a turning point because her entire bloodline is is essentially gone at this point they're the only ones who are left at that point are tidebringer and her um and <laughs> But, it, the, you know, so she's she's forced into hiding, but she wants to get out and mm -hmm. she wants to escape from this. 
and and she's and but you know in that respect you know it's it's about her identity because this is also what she's born into and one of the things that the book refers to is how there's like these physical sensations that they feel um heightened senses and whatnot approaching the agon so even if you are even though she's been out and she's been running away from it she's aware that it's coming just because she can feel it in her body like you could never you know it's one of those things where it's like ingrained in you in that sense so it makes it really hard to escape your past yeah yeah and not to necessarily bring up a different greek retelling but there's a couple of parallels i think with the percy jackson series and what you've been describing so i don't know how familiar either of you guys are with the percy jackson um middle grade series they are middle grade novels um but one thing that is interesting about them is that the the half the demigods the half-blooded children of the major gods are all sent to a special camp to live once they hit a certain age because they no longer fit into society um they can if their parents want to keep them and by parents i mean the mortal side of the family not the greek side but not everyone's family wants to deal with demigod children and also with regards to the language piece that does exist in percy jackson all of them are dyslexic in normal society american society but once they go to camp half-blood they all find they can read ancient greek their their minds were just never <laughs> meant to process English. They were always meant to be reading and processing in Greek, which it's not the same as a cultural difference. It's like it's genetic. It's ingrained in them that they are always meant to be a part of the Greek life. But one thing that Camp Half-Blood does that I never really got my head around was that they teach them how to fight using old weapons. So they're doing like capture the flag, but with like spears and arrows and things like that. So like a normal camp experience, but with these old weapons that don't have a place in modern society. So in a way it's this weird stagnation and continuation of this culture, even though the world outside of the camp has since progressed and the kids that leave see that but then they have to come back and they're kind of straddling these two spheres um, they, they use ancient weapons in this too yeah no guns so this is not the video game hades where you get a gun <laughs> um which is the best weapon in that game and it belonged to hestia um <laughs> which is hilarious to me the goddess of the hearth has a has a gun yeah um, no there's yeah, that's that's not what's happening in here. <laughs> nope. nope. Guns are probably far too merciful, really, for these people. I mean, they're just, they're so violent. And, and it's actually one of the other little points of amusement. They're trying to get recon. They're trying to approach somebody and, and get recon going in. And so they have every every bloodline has these what are called messengers, right? And they're off limits. They're not allowed to be killed. They're allowed to communicate between the different bloodlines. This is how this is how communication flows. And so they have one of the messengers with their group. And um, and so he's got this whole backpack filled with, you know, things. And so he pulls out, you know, and I mean, it's quickly apparent to us, even though the way it's described, you know, it's quickly apparent to us that it's a drone that looks like a little bird. And, you know, Athena's just given him a look of disgust, like um you know like like i you know like i can't believe you're using technology is kind of like written all over her face and then you know she's just like i do not approve of this false bird like you know this and that that but that's very much their thinking you know but then when he you know has the bird blow out darts that you know uh put the scout the you know, the, the guards to sleep then then she's kind of like i do not approve but i appreciate it the the lethality of <laughs> you know and it's like you know and he's like they're not dead they're just asleep they'll be awake in an hour you know and of course that 
just further discussed, sir. It's kind of like, what is this world that you are living in where you just put people to sleep? Just kill them. You know? Anyway, I have not read the Percy Jackson books, but I've heard of them. I'm definitely familiar with them. And it's just interesting to hear you talk about some of the parallels there. There's a couple of parallels. And then once you get further into the series, there is also a very interesting plot line with um, the demigod of Hades and how he is actually born in the 1940s, but gets caught out of time. And he ends up in the modern era. So not only is he a demigod, he is also not of this time period. He was born in World War II Italy. And he shows up in the 2000s and he's just like, what is this? I'm just a little goth boy. What am I supposed to do? Um, But his character arc is also very interesting because he is, I cannot remember if he's bisexual or if he's gay, but he does end up with the, um, uh, it's been confirmed, he does end up with the demigod son of Apollo. So they are a couple in the game. So, or not the game. Wow. In the book. So the book is actually really great for middle grades kids and anybody, actually. I would recommend anyone read it just because it's a lot of exploration of not only sexuality, but like family dilemmas and things like that. So they're quick reads. They're fun. Why not? They're coming to Disney Plus apparently soon. Um, Is it everything? Everything. Well, Disney owns that imprint. So that explains why they already have it. But they're fun. Ah. They're fun books. Um, also a good way to introduce young children to the gods without too much uh, bloodshed necessarily, but still having some violence. There are deaths in the books, just not as frequent as in lore. Um, where was I going to go with this as well? There was something else you I, said. I, I thought triggered something. I I thought Elle was going to jump in there for a second. I did too. I was hoping she was going to, so my brain can catch up with my mouth. <laughs> I was, and then you said you you were having a point. Um, yeah, and there's something really like attractive as well about the idea of the gods walking among us as mortals or as demigods. The intersection between the modern and the, like you said, their very old-fashioned sense of being. Um, similar to what probably makes the Eternals appealing, even if it wasn't that great of a film. But the original comic run, um, Hades, like you said, even though it doesn't have that modern context of it, it's putting the the characteristics of these gods into a modern, into modern characters in a sense. Yeah, but we also can't forget, Elle, that the game Hades, which did win a Hugo Award for, like, best fantasy game or something like that. I think it's the first game ever that's won that award, actually. Um, The reason that it works so well is that no one has ever really looked into the myths about Zagreus. He's, like, a non-existing god almost, but he does exist. And so let's just make him the star of our video game. Have fun. Yeah, it does utilise a lot of the lesser known ones as well. This is true. Sandra, you're giving me a look like, what is this? <laughs> oh, no, I mean, my, you know, my niece and and, um, and her husband are, and well, and my nephew and uh, and his spouse, and uh, they're all avid gamers. So I hear little bits of, of things about different games. But I actually think it's interesting... It, in a way, it's interesting to go after the ones who are less popular or less well-known because I think you have more liberty there. I think, I, you know, I was just thinking about this in this context. I mean, you have to kind of appreciate the fact that, um, or I don't, maybe, okay, maybe that's the wrong wording. Maybe you don't have to appreciate it. But it's interesting to me that we can have these retellings of Greek mythology without there being any kind of cultural appropriation backlash that I'm aware of. I haven't heard about it with the Percy Jackson series. I haven't heard about it with this book. Uh, I haven't heard about it at all. It, um, maybe it's out there and I've just missed it. But if this was if this was a different religion or mythology, 
you could imagine that being an issue. I was just thinking, could you imagine if somebody took this principle and did a retelling based on the Old Testament God? Because, I mean, think about it. The Old Testament is like incredibly violent uh, as well. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of death and there's a, a real lack of, well, both justice and mercy, if you want my opinion. And I have read the whole thing. So, uh, it, you know, I just find it interesting that we can actually explore Greek mythology this way without there being um, those types of criticisms, uh, and which you could imagine would definitely come out if somebody wrote this about the Old Testament. I'm, sh- with, I'm sure that that would yeah. be an issue. I think part of it, because I've, I've thought about this a lot before, Especially because I've thought about how would I feel if, say, like, you know, because Amer- some American writers use Celtic mythology and stuff. But I think the difference to me is that you don't have people now who still believe in the Greek gods. Slightly different as well with Norse mythology, because some people out there have sort of almost readopted that. But you can still get away with things like, you know, the Marvel Thor films and... Mm. Loki and stuff but it's not seen as cultural appropriation to the same way that using uh, aboriginal or indigenous Native American mythology where you still have that uh, those beliefs in that culture um, in the same way that using it completely from you know exist what exists now Another thing, just to build on what you said, Elle, is that a lot of our language, a lot of our stories that we were raised with do stem from a lot of these mythologies. So in a way, I think we've always, by we, I mean, obviously the Western cultures, it's kind of ingrained in a lot of what we grow up with and what we experience. And so, like, it's not an other thing. It's, I'm using other in, um, I don't even know how I'm going to explain how I'm using the othering, but it's not as uncommon to hear about Greek mythology on a day-to-day basis versus Norse mythology or even African mythology, which I've been reading up on. And it's fascinating, but I could never even begin to write a story about it i don't know it that well i was not raised in that environment to believe it or to have that intricate knowledge so i think in that sense instead of like a cultural backlash i think we're just looking at an extension of our culture in the west as a whole with each of these retellings as we adapt them to where we are currently yeah that could be i mean i (laughs) i'd be curious to know what you know uh, what people who are Greek think about some of them, particularly talking to somebody who, you know, who lives in Greece as opposed to somebody who lives here but has Greek heritage. I'd be curious to know what they think of these retellings. But when you say it's just sort of an extension, I mean, it's the little side jokes in this that like make me think like, I mean, I I don't know anything personally about Alexander Bracken other than that she's quite successful in a New York Times bestseller. And but I can imagine that she must uh, she must have researched extensively. Like she's got the little in jokes. Like it's like when Castor needs to change his clothes and uh, you know, and Van brings him a change of clothes and he pulls it out and he goes, Nike, really? Like <laughs> you know, like these are jokes that you're gonna get if you pick up on the Greek references. And if you don't know Greek mythology, some of those things are just gonna fly past you. I can't speak specifically to the retellings aspect, but I know like when because we went to Greece a few times when I was younger. My dad loves going there. He goes there quite regularly. Um like when he can and they love talking about their mythology but they also love selling the merchandise basically um i know when my parents went on a holiday to greece they bought a centaur for me um just a wooden carving and the guy told them that um i think it was i can't remember the name of the centaur now it was the guy who taught jason and it was 
it's not Chiron. Chiron, yeah, Chiron. Um, so it was the island where he had been lived, and they, the guy selling the thing, told my my dad that he had been there three years ago because he couldn't remember three thousand. But when you speak to them, they they love telling you about oh this is where this happened and this is where Jason sailed from and things like that as well. They do really embrace it. It's great. I mean, you know, it's an interesting thing, like when you spin this in a different direction. I mean, my my heritage is so muddled, really, uh, because I have parts of my family have been in North America for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it really changes some of the dynamics because when you start pulling on the threads, I have ancestors who came from Germany, who came from what is now France, but then wasn't. Uh, I mean, I, but then I have, um, you know, closer ancestors who came from Ireland, from um, England, from Wales, Scotland. And so it's just this hodgepodge really. Um, And, and I have not felt comfortable with the idea of, exploring any existing mythology in my own writing in this one project that I've been working on. It it deals with the afterlife extensively um, because most of the story takes place in kind of a holding space between eternity and, and earth. And, uh, and I created my own mythology for it. Uh, Whether or not it ever sees the light of day, who knows, but I felt really uncomfortable with the idea even of going towards Celtic mythology, which, yes, I have ancestors who come from those parts of the world. I spent some time living in Ireland, but I just don't feel that I know it well enough to uh, treat it with the respect due. And and I had concerns about how that would be taken. So it's, it's, you know, and I think that's one of the challenges for us in North America that, you know, as writers, I think everybody's kind of in their own boat. Some people have very successfully delved into their family history and their cultural roots and been able to explore those storylines, you know, in an impressive way. And it's not something I felt comfortable with, but I think that's because I was raised with a total disconnect from it. No, I mean, St. Patrick's Day is just not being, <laughs> it's not being Irish in this, in the way that people in Ireland view that. And I know I have Irish friends who really look down upon this whole, like, you know, your lucky charms and leprechauns and all of this, what they would call nonsense, right? Because we've sort of both, we've commercialized things here in a way that isn't, necessarily always respectful or holding true to the mythology that it's based off of but i i mean i'm speaking less about greek in north america and i'm speaking more about celtic in in that context um so i personally haven't felt like i could go there really or that i should go there myself but i applaud you know and this is where i look at a book like this and i just think like you know, wow, it just seems like it fires on all cylinders and that she really knew her stuff, like, you know, impressively so. And it, it did draw back things to me that I remembered from school, you know, like a faint echo, you know, that, that I haven't really thought about for a long time. You know, but, you know, I imagine that there was a lot of research that went into this book. Yeah, absolutely. It yeah. sounds like she's approached it a research heavy way but in a way that the research doesn't necessarily bog down the story yeah not at all uh and and it's funny because when i say that this book is very violent it is violent but i i didn't rem- i i first read it around well i read it before it came out because i had an arc um so i read it quite some time ago originally and like well over a year ago and so i've been rereading to prepare for today and 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 it was funny because the way that it had stayed in my brain was wasn't that it was violent it was that it was action-packed 
and it is yeah. incredibly action packed. Um, just constantly things happening. Uh, she does a, a masterful job of weaving in the character details and their histories and whatnot while moving the story forward, uh, which is impressive. But I mean, there is a lot of violence, and and I had to sort of step back and go, "Wow, this book really is really violent," and I really didn't think about that nearly as much in my takeaway after reading it. What I remember, I remembered both the action how action-packed it was but also how much character how much the character arcs go like i mean for obvious reasons i've been thinking a lot about identity as an issue lately and that is at the core of this book you know who you are what you were born to be and what you can be if you make the choices to um to take charge of your own destiny and and I think that that's that's like the undercurrent be beneath all of this, uh, and and that appealed to me as a discussion topic because I I think I and I think it's really relevant for teens too because as teenagers you're in this state where you're becoming you're figuring things out you're you're just just discovering things about yourself in terms of what you like what you don't like you're exploring your sexuality all of these things happen in your teen years which make them you know sort of supercharged and and very pivotal times and i think that this book gets to a lot of those things and and peels it back i mean because because there are characters in here who are gay and it's never really like it's it's not something that you're ever bludgeoned with or or anything like that it's not help it just is they just are, and and there's something really beautiful uh, in that presentation. I find I I think it it just everything is you know it, it, there's there's no there's no questioning. There's just this assurance of this is who I am. This is what I am, and 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 it's all okay. There's no judgment there. The the worst discrimination comes from the ancient bloodlines obviously and those who are getting out of it um have far more accepting uh, attitudes and which is really quite wonderful that they're prepared to explore themselves that way and move beyond what they've been raised with yeah and i would say the foundation of any book that's really stuck with me through the years is that exploration of identity I think that's always going to be, has been, always will be a great base, like a great foundation for a story. How you build the rest of the story can take any any kind of um, flow and you can use any material you want. But that's always something I think that is inherently relatable to people. Because even if you're, a teenager, I mean, I'm in my 30s and I still don't know who I am. Who do I want to be when I grow up? <laughs> um, and so I think that's something that's relatable to a lot of people because the only thing that really changes from teenage years to your 30s, 40s, and beyond, your brain matures. Like, you just become a little bit more comfortable with yourself, but you never really stop that questioning aspect for the most majority of people, I would say. And in that sense, it's, I don't know if it's, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? This book is a YA, but as you said, it's violent. It has that identity questioning thing, that straddling of generations, things like that. It's almost a disservice to disregard this book just because it's in the YA section. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> and that's and that was part of, you know, what drew me back to choosing this one, because there's a lot of power here. And I think in this, I mean, obviously, I did not grow up with social media. I'm a little bit older than you. And so I think about teens today. I think about young people today. And your mistakes are immortalized in a in this perverse way today in ways that they weren't when I was growing up. And I think that um, for for some of us anyways, 
there's enough shame and embarrassment about the mistakes that you've made throughout your youth. Uh, it's really quite wonderful that some of us were able to move beyond that and shed that part and were allowed to grow up and mature. But it's really hard for people today to fully escape everything that they've ever done in their life because somebody's got video of it that they've posted online. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. And like, and, and, and that resonates with, with the, it, it, and it's interesting because it resonates with these ancient bloodlines in here. Like they're so entrenched and this is who you are and this is what you were raised to. And, and so uh, while it isn't like, you know, it, you know, there isn't a heavy hammer on it, but again, these undercurrents in this story about shame, regret, uh, you know, and how you can love somebody who's part of your family and at the same time, turn your back on their traditions without that being disrespect. That's a very delicate balancing act. Uh, if you really think about it, and particularly when you're raised in a in such a rigid culture, and but that's those things are in here with the the characters who are grappling with this. You have both Laura and her friend Castor who are dealing with different things, um, without you know getting too far into that, and 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 dealing with moving forward in their lives and charting their own course without being held back into the past. I think it's quite wonderful. And I think it's also encouraging, I would hope, to readers, and particularly to young readers, to think that you can change, you can evolve, you can grow, you can escape. You are not limited to the sum of your parents' choices or your family history. And and, and there's something beautiful and encouraging about that yeah and Definitely. as you mentioned identity of course and you said you've been thinking about it a lot recently for the listeners who aren't aware sandra has recently released the dead inside which is an anthology of identity horror co-edited with laurel hightower um and one of my stories is in it as well so definitely pick that up um, I'm really excited for my copy to arrive so I can read all the others, but I think it's going to be a heartbreaking book. It yeah. is, but you know what? Uh, and it's interesting to, to think about these themes. There's also something hopeful in it too. And, yeah. and I think, you know, and, 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 I, and, and I think that's part of the reason why when I was thinking about which book to choose, that, that my brain went back to this one because there is something both heartbreaking and hopeful in Lore's quest to, you know, to, to move on to the next chapter in her life and, and to figure out what that looks like and how to escape from her past forever. Um, you know, and and I, I think that, you know, and these are things, these are universal themes. It doesn't, it doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter who you love. Everybody struggles with figuring themselves out and deciding what they want to become and, and what parts of themselves that they want to embrace and nurture and what parts of themselves that they you know, want to push away because all of us have little bad things about ourselves. You know, like, I mean, you might have a temper and you don't have a temper because you have an Irish ancestor. You have a temper because you have a temper and you need to learn to control that temper. You know, it's not a, you know, it's just, it's an interesting thing in our society where we, you know, uh, have these cultural stereotypes that we embrace and almost use them as excuses. Um, uh, and if ever there was a culture that had an excuse, it would be the culture that Laura grew up in. And yet she doesn't use that as an excuse to justify violence. She does not like the violence. Uh, she's prepared to fight. She's a great fighter. But she does not want, you know, she, when people go into dangerous situations, what's in her brain is don't get killed, don't get killed. You know, like she does not want to see people harmed. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not why she gets up in the morning. And I think that that's, there's something 
you know, beautiful and refreshing about that, considering what she was raised with. You know, because there's a scene from the child from childhood when they're being trained and her and her friend Castor are in training and their initiation into their training is that all of the other kids, you know, pull out these, you know, these sticks and just start beating them, mm. you know, and, and, and they're like on the verge of passing out. They're just blacking out, like, you know, seeing stars the whole bit. And you're right in that moment. And eventually Loris, you know, somebody hits her and Loris says, thank you. And so, and then Castor starts and they, and every time they get hit, they say, thank you. This is how they're conditioned to be thankful for pain, to be thankful, to be hit and abused. What I mean, <laughs> I don't even begin to fathom the mentality uh, that goes into training kids to think that way. Yeah. Reggie, anything else to add? I don't have anything else to add. I'm just like, how can I follow up on that? Because I can't even wrap my head around that, how you could possibly raise children. And I know people do in this reality, unfortunately, do raise their kids to be like that. I can't wrap my head around it. So, no, of course. Um, and obviously, like you said, it, it's a cycle of violence that's incredibly hard to break. But it sounds like Lord does that successfully. And mm -hmm. seeing that in books is always a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's why this book, it's unflinching in the sense that it doesn't shy away from the fact that this is the reality that she was raised with. And it's the reality of this little, I don't know, microcosm within New York City um, at this time. Because sometimes they do uh, hold the egg on in other cities around the world. It isn't always in New York. But, um, you know, but I, I think it's just interesting to me that, you know, she's she's prepared to, to break away from it. And so while it's transparently looked at, it isn't idolized, not by her, not because we have, we, because we come to the story from her perspective, she doesn't glorify it in her, in the way that it's reflected on, you know, she can remember as a child that she wanted to train and that she was excited to be allowed to train and, and to do this. But looking back later because you're getting this as a reflection uh you can see that it's not held up as these great wonderful things but kind of the horror seeps through yeah definitely sandra we've mentioned the dead inside is there anything else you want to promote alongside that as well well i have you know uh, dark dispatch which obviously published The Dead Inside and has published a couple of issues to date. And we currently are open to submissions with the theme of outsiders. And that's pretty loose theme in terms of how to interpret that. It could be about, you know, people who are being excluded, shunned, those who don't feel like they're part of society any any which way you wanted to interpret outsiders. That's the theme and um, the submission guidelines are posted on the website which is www.darkdispatch.com awesome. okay and what about on social media is anywhere listeners can find you uh dark dispatch has a twitter um at dark underscore dispatch and i have twitter but i'm not always i i'm not always on as much i've been trying to pare back a little bit of social media and so i, I am on twitter at sandra rattan i you know but a word of warning is that i don't really follow back until i have a sense of who people are uh you know yeah. just uh so just that's my caution to people i i would advise people not follow me <laughs> really um unless they're really sure that they want to interact <laughs> because i'm not uh, around quite as much as i used to be i'm trying to trying to step back and and limit my social media time very fair well, 
Right. And if you want to follow the podcast on social media, you can do that at Esbatbuckish. And I'm at L Turpit. Yep. And I am at Reggie C Rights, R E G I C as in cat rights. Um, and then L and I both had a book out recently. Elle, would you like to promote that lovely anthology? So, and this actually probably pairs well, quite well with The Dead Inside. Um, a Woman Built by Man is an anthology about the ways the patriarchy have shaped women and the ways that women are fighting back. Um, it was amazing to read all the submissions, extremely difficult to pick the ones that went into the book. Um, but yes, Reggie is in there. I co-edited it with S.H. Cooper. Uh, and of course, you can grab that anywhere now. And I do recommend that while you're doing that, you pick up the dead side as well. Yes, for sure. Treat yourself, because why not? Add a box of Kleenex. <laughs> yeah, because yes. they, they, both books will make you cry, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> or maybe fortunately, because we do like drinking readers' tears. But it's always fun. <laughs> so, Sandra, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Bye. All right. Bye, guys. Bye.